So you got your Bibles? Because it's Christmas, I want to just touch on something that's maybe Christmassy, well, in a sort of a fashion. But this morning, I want to go into a little bit of the Christmas backstory. And I'm trusting this morning that the message I share forever settles something that was popularly taught. And we've alluded it to before, and we've spoken about it, and I've even preached on it before. But I think this morning, it should put that subject to bed. Is that okay? So can I preach it? Will you give me your undivided attention for the next little while? And just, yes, amen. So I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. On the way to Matthew, go to 1 Timothy 3.16, the last verse of 1 Timothy 3. And I did quote it at the beginning of the service where it says, Without controversy, another translation says, Without doubt, that the mystery of godliness is great. And it is a great mystery. And the opening line tells us the mystery. How God became flesh. And he became flesh and dwelt among us, another writer says. And so the whole thing, God is spirit. Spirit is not physical, is not visible. In a sense, spirit cannot be contained. So the mystery of God becoming flesh is a mystery. How does that happen? It's something only God could do. It's not even a human being indwelt with God because that's us. It's something more than that. That someone, a human being, is at the same time fully God. And God is at the same time fully human. It's profound. It's beyond. You cannot get your head around that, okay? And especially when you look at the nature of man versus the nature of God. You can't get around it. So great is the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. God became flesh. And so I don't want to go into that anymore. But one of the things that Matthew talks about in the Gospel of Matthew is he looks at, and for me it's just such an interesting um, gospel. It's just interesting because something new starts, and in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 it says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's very interesting that the King James says it slightly differently than what this NIV says it. So it talks about, you know, in Genesis 5, Adam's genealogy. And that takes us to the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. And so when the New Testament comes, it says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we sometimes read it. So you need to listen. Concentrated outreach with your ears. We sometimes read it and we think it's just the story of Jesus. But I want to tell you, if you read it carefully, it's the story of us. Because we are part now of the generation of Jesus Christ. Okay? The Jews were very, very particular about their genealogy. And they needed to be. Is everybody listening? So they needed to be very particular because God chose a man which became a family, which became a clan basically, which became a nation. And it was through that line that the promised seed was to come. And so the importance of protecting and keeping pure the genealogy because God knew the enemy was out to destroy the line through whom the seed would come to deliver Jesus Christ. And so there was a lot of protection on it. And so they were particularly fussy about the genealogies, okay? And especially concerning the priesthood and things like this. You had to be part of that family, that tribe uh, to qualify as a priest. And it continues to today. But Israel missed the point because when Jesus was born, 
They were still being meticulous about the genealogies and getting into arguments. And then Paul says two or three times in the New Testament, he says, listen, this thing about genealogies, it's, it's, it's over. Is it okay? It's finished. No more about genealogies and controversies and foolish talk. And he says it doesn't promote faith. Because then he tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that there is now neither Jew nor Greek, you know, uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, not even male or female in Christ. And so we don't trace our genealogy in that sense. I mean, we have a genealogical record. We have got ancestors. But the thing is, it's not our life source because now we've been placed into Christ. And so that really is important. It really, 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 really is important. We need to get such a revelation of it because it will change the way we think about ourselves. It will change our lives. It's really important for us to understand that if we get a revelation of it, there's similarities to your family line physically, but it doesn't have to be any other way. Because you bring through the image of Jesus Christ, and that is important. And so I'm, of course, his white father. I have a black son. Amen? But both of us belong to Jesus. And the, the similarities that we have is not in our skin color, is not our accents or our language. Our commonality, our similarity is to the Lord Jesus Christ. We bear His image. Amen? So it's important for us to understand that. It's really important for us to understand the fact that the enemy would really like to mess with our new genealogy. Amen? through whom the seed came. Is that right? So look, this is quite strong stuff, I know. And so it's really interesting. Some years ago, when we were at Bible College, I've mentioned it for a good friend of mine, Patrick Humberstone, was telling me, he said, wow, I started going to my genealogy because they were from England originally. And he said, and I discovered Dick Turpin. I'm related to Dick Turpin, the famous highway robber man. He says, so I stopped looking. <laughs> so that got my interest going. So I started looking, and I found, huh, a really famous Vossaman who discovered the cure for venereal disease. I was like, whoa, whoa, no Dick Turpins in my family, you know. But as I started to, dis to uncover more, I discovered, no, there's some shady people in there, you know. It's not all glowing and wonderful, you know. I know you look at me and think, what an amazing man. His forefathers must have been incredible. No, they weren't, and neither were yours. Amen? And so when we read through the book of Matthew, and we start to read Abraham, verse 2, was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. We keep on going. We come down to verse 3. Is everybody following me? Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. And it says, and then Judah, the father of Perez. Now, we know already about Abraham. Hey, I mean, he was wonderful. He was the father of faith. Yeah, but he lied. He was so scared, he couldn't even protect his wife. Now, how many of you wives would be really proud of your husband and think, how can God call him the father of faith when Abimelech says, who's that dolly? And God, ah, my sister. And she's going, really? <laughs> so he was a bungbrook, really. And so, so there was Father Abraham, you know. There's Judah. Judah, Jesus is called the line of the tribe of Judah. He broke godliness. You know that Judah really was a traitor. Sold his brother off into slavery. 
the only thing that had his favor was the other brothers wanted to kill him. They said, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's just, let's just sell him into slavery. So they sold you know, poor Joseph into slavery. But then later when he has children, he has sons, and the one dies, what you're supposed to do is the wife then is given to the next surviving brother to continue the family name. Well, the son was just like the father, like Judah. And he goes, so he doesn't marry her. But then he dies. So then what's supposed to happen was Judah is supposed to marry her so that the family name can continue. It sounds complicated, but it was the, the, the way those days and, and the way of protecting the seed line. And um, so, you know, then he says to her eventually, he says, well, you can have the youngest son if you prepare to wait. And, and then Judah thinks, oh, well, I've lost two sons. Well, maybe he'll die. And I don't know what issue he had with Tamar, you know, his daughter-in-law. But then later he's going up to go and share sheep. And Tamar hears about it, going to a friend who was sharing sheep. And, and so she sits on the side of the road, and she takes off her mourning clothes, and she puts on clothes like a prostitute. So he has Judah. You know, Jesus of the line of the tribe of Judah. He has Judah. Sees her, and he goes, you know, how about it? And the daughter-in-law then sleeps with him, but says, give me your staff and your seal as a pledge. Because she said, what will you give me? I'll give you a goat. You know, give you a hundred bucks. And uh, so eventually it all comes out. This is Judah. And he's listed in the, this is the backstory. So all I'm encouraging you to do, don't go digging into your, your heritage line, all right? You might find some things and go, oh, Jesus. <laughs> then we get Solomon. You know, why is King Solomon? Did you know that he ended up with a thousand wives and concubines? Did you know that? One for every three years. Have I seen you before? Yeah, it was three years ago. (laughs) 700 wives, 300 concubines. I mean, what do you do with all those? I mean, imagine the grocery list. Imagine having to go shopping for them, you know? Yeah, that's why why I needed a whole courtroom full of people. But Solomon, this, this... And they all served their foreign gods, and eventually Solomon also went that way. He has David's son. He has the wisest man on earth making the dumbest decisions. But he's listed in the family line of Jesus. This is the backstory. Is that okay? And then we come down to Ahaz. Ahaz was an incredibly wicked king. You could call him King Ahaz the Terrible. And, um, you know, after... King David and King Solomon died. Judah had around about 21 kings in the succession before um, going into Babylon. But only about three or four of them were righteous. All the rest were wicked. They were evil. And Ahaz was listed as one of the most wicked. And um, it's really um, interesting. He, He probably was the worst king of Judah, probably in the class of Ahab, you know, of Israel. And he did everything God said don't do. Everything. It was almost like he had a checklist from the law. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And he went, tick, and he did the opposite. Tick, and he did the opposite. I mean, he brought false worship into the temple that Solomon built. He, 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 I mean, what he didn't do, he, he brought in um, idols and Asherah poles and put them on the, the high places. And, and it, it just didn't come to an end. And then not only that, he also then added murder 
to his resume and, and things like this. But Ahaz was really, really amazing. And so he offered to the gods of Damascus, built high places to burn sacrifices and, and all this kind of thing. And then there was one specific mentioned by name thing that God specifically forbade the Israelites from doing was making offerings to the god Molech or Moloch. And uh, that was a fire god. And uh, so they would have a, a you know, big statue, a big image, and it was on fire. And they would sacrifice their children to the god Molech, throw their live child into the, the red-hot arms of this god Molech. And they would you know, be burnt to a, a cinder in this worship. And so you'll see it several times. Do not cause your, your sons and your daughters to pass through the fire. But what it was, not just to pass through, but basically they were thrown into the fire and burnt alive to the god Molech. And Ahaz did this, and he instituted it as a, a form of worship. And, and here, you know, he's mentioned in the line of Jesus. Isn't it incredible? And, and we go on, you know. We can just keep going on all the way down and, and having a look at, you know, the family tree of Jesus. And we can bring different things out of it, but it, it's just amazing. All of the particular stuff that they did. So anyways, so there was Judah. Then also mentioned by name was Rahab. How many of you remember Rahab? Yeah, they helped the spies to get into Jericho. What was Rahab's profession? She was a prostitute. She was in the genealogical line of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? You know? I mean, imagine, you know, a famous prostitute in South Africa, and you go like, oh, that's my great-great-grandmother. People are like, oh, really? <laughs> um, if you're in a Pentecostal church, they'd immediately line you up for deliverance. Amen. But not only that, the famous King David is mentioned. You know, the incredible thing about David is, and listen, can I just say this? It's the way God wants it. We remember an incredible king. But there was a period in his life. In the time that kings go to war, David didn't go out to war. He was up on the rooftop and he looked down and he saw Bathsheba bathing. The problem was she was married to Uriah the Hittite. But the Bible says that he sent for her and he took her. He actually forcefully took her. It wasn't consensual. It was an unequal balance of power. How do you say no to the king and such a powerful king? Probably the most powerful king on the face of the earth that day. How do you say no? She was taken by force, not willingly. She was married, therefore it was rape. Not only that, he then conspired to have her husband killed. You know, and it was plotted. Send him into the battle, tells the commander of the army, send him right up to the gates in the thick of the battle, the heat of the battle, knowing they're going to throw hot oil or millstones or fire straight down arrows. And he said, in the heat of the battle, get the troops to withdraw. And they left Uriah on his own under the gate, and he was killed. That's King David. And Jesus becomes known as Jesus, the son of David. What David had in his favor was when the prophet pointed it out to him, his repentance was as wide as his sin. And you read about that, his cry of repentance in Psalm 51. But there is, you know, there is... King David, the murderer. And then, of course, King Manasseh. Oh, if you thought 
Ahaz was bad. Manasseh was even worse. And uh, he also sacrificed his own son. He did eventually repent, but, you know, the damage was done. And um, it set the course of Israel firmly into a place where they were going to be judged. And so we can go through to King Joash. King Joash was also evil. And, um, you know, he, he was in contention for the worst king of Judah. But then there was Jehoiada, the high priest. And when he died, it was like um, King Joash went off the edge. And then Zechariah, who was a priest, actually then was appointed as a prophet. And then he started to prophesy against the sins of Israel and the sins of, of this king. So what did he do? He just organizes to have him murdered, stoned to death. And where? In the precincts of the temple. In the most holy place. He has a prophet killed. So he was a wicked prophet murderer, you know. And, and we can continue going through the Bible and having a look at all of the things that we see and, and go through the people listed there and, and um, see that the genealogical line of Jesus was far from glowing, far from pure, far from filled with righteous men and women. Now I want to go back to Matthew chapter 1 and just have a look at the things. And we can go on and on and on and on with this list. But I want to go back to Matthew chapter 1 because it's quite interesting. In Matthew chapter 1, he lists all of the members of the genealogy of Jesus taking it further back. And he starts with Abraham. It's interesting. In the book of Luke, he more or less goes the reverse order, but he ends up son of Adam, son of God. And he just adds another two in, but he throws Adam in, which is not over here in Matthew's record. Are you all following me? So the interesting thing is, I, I want you to have a look, and this is from the Amplified Classic, the AMPC translation. So he goes, verse 17, Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. From David to the Babylonian exile to the deportation, 14 generations. From the Babylonian exile to the Christ, 14 generations. And after that, no more generations are mentioned. Yet in Scripture, it talks about in Isaiah 53, who shall declare his generation. Is that okay? And you find it in Isaiah where it talks about his generation. His offspring. How many of you know we are his generation and we are his offspring? But look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to read it from the Amplified Classic. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place under these circumstances. The AMPC. So it says it differently there. So the birth of Jesus Christ took place under these circumstances. And he begins to list it. But you have to keep in mind what was before. So, the amazing thing is, often we like to blame where we are today onto the circumstances under which we were born. If Jesus was born under these circumstances, with a long line of wickedness and unrighteousness in his family line, but he stood righteous... And what circumstances were you born under? Now, it's amazing that right out of this line of the genealogy of Jesus, especially from the line of Manasseh, 
a particular thought started to come out, a particular proverb that started to come out. And that proverb is still being preached in a different form in the church today. But today we're going to settle it, dust it in ACF. Is that okay? It's not going to be here anymore. And so, so particularly from the time of Manasseh. But how many of you know that by the time the wickedness got too much, God said, even if you repent, you can't turn things around. So a lot of times it is preached and taught that it was the wrath and the judgment of God, them ending up in exile and in deportation. There's an element of truth in it, but it's actually, it's actually not true. Say it with me. And I, I studied it and studied it from Friday night, studied it yesterday, studied it last night, and I've discovered quite a few theologians who agree with me. It's not so much judgment as consequences that become irreversible. Everybody say consequences. Consequences. Now, I want you to know it's in the Old Testament as well as in the New. Is that all right? It's amazing that, um, and, and I can find the verse to you, but it talks about the fact that evil judges evil. Wickedness, you know. So in other words, the evil I do, that actually is what judges me. Amen. So, so you got to see that, and then they began to pick up this parable, and there were descendants of Judah and Israel and those people, you know, and they look back at Manasseh because right at the end of Manasseh's life, I mean, there was absolute abject wickedness. At the end of his life, it repents. But he couldn't turn the chain of consequences that had been launched. It becomes an inevitability. Now, how many of you know you can get a hold of drugs and you can experiment for a little while? You can get a hold of alcohol. You can push the limits with it. Any kind of thing. You can start to steal and, and you can go so far, but the, the point comes when it takes over, and then you can't change the consequences. It becomes an inevitable thing. And you're either enslaved by it, or you're caught out, and you can't turn the thing around. And you're sitting with the consequences of the thing. Okay. So by the time they got into Babylon, they were sitting with consequences. Everybody say the consequences of the sins. Now, it's really interesting. They started to coin a phrase. They started to speak about, and there was this parable. They said, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth have been set on edge. Now, I don't know if you've ever eaten a sour grape or something. You eat it, and it's like, and it's like your teeth. It's like you get hair on your teeth. Strong coffee will do it. Uh, cream of tartar will do it. And, and it's just like really sour. And it's like, mm, mm, mm. and it's almost, you know, and so they quote this proverb. Now, they were quoting it for their justification. Now, you can go and study it. I studied it, okay? Um, and I finished, I was up four o'clock this morning finishing it off, so I think I'm right. Okay. And so basically what they were saying is this, saying, my dad ate the sour grapes, and I am feeling the effects. Good? Now, that's what they're saying. And so God says, so why are you quoting this parable? Now, who was quoting the parable? The people in exile were quoting the parable. So the people in exile were going like, this God is so unfair. We didn't do anything wrong. It was our forefathers. So it's the sin of our forefathers. They did it. And here we are innocent, and we're being punished for what they did. And God is going, Really? So we'll look at the really answer of God. Is it okay? So listen, this is how it morphed. This is how it underwent a metamorphosis, that doctrine underwent. But unfortunately, the people who metamorphosized it didn't read properly. 
Because now they go, oh, you've got to start breaking hereditary, generational. You're right on. Same parable. Well, I can't help it. And you go to one of those counselors, the first thing they're going to do is like, all right, let's break the generational curses. Somewhere in your line, your great-great-great-father was um, in Freemasonry. Oh, they love the Freemasonry one. And it's all, they just, uh, Freemasonry, they love it. And he was in Freemasonry. Oh, I don't know him. Some of them will even quote dates. Now, you can go back. It was 1643. Well, I have to trust you because how am I going to find 1643? No, seriously, this is what they do. And go, 1643, you can go and check it out. Somebody in my family traced our genealogical records back to the 1300s. But from around about 1400, 1500, it gets really shady and dark. But there's not enough information. I just know about one very infamous Wasserman who portrayed the Boers to the British. So they shot him. He's buried in Philippe somewhere as a traitor, one Wasserman. So I just pretend I'm not related to him. <laughs> and so only, how, how am I going to find out this information? To be effectively delivered. To be successfully have all the generational curses broken off of me. You see, one of the things that they read and they, they misread certain scriptures. So go to, with me to Exodus 20 verse 5. So we're still talking about Jesus. Is that okay? Are you getting something? Okay. Now how many of you know God lives by his own principles? So if we look at Exodus 20 verse 5 where he says this um, in verse 4, then in verse 5, then in verse 6 he says, You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath. I'm reading from NIV. Or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Everybody say he's talking about idolatry. Is that okay? Everybody say he's talking about idols. Say the context is worshiping idols. Okay. He says, so you won't worship me, won't bow down, Father, Lord your God. I'm a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Listen to this. Of those who now, how many in this room hate God? Oh, how many of you are, are into idol worship? So you're not in idol worship and you don't hate God. Oh well, then that doesn't apply to Christians. Well, now there's a revelation. Okay, it's to those that hate him, and it's particularly to do with idolatry, but showing love. To a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. But showing love to a thousand generations. A thousand generations from me. A thousand generations down the line, they're going to be blessed. And it's because part John served God. Is that okay? How much more powerful is that? Now, one, and and we we will discuss this and look into it. One um, translator says this, it's not, it, the, the, the context is the sin of idolatry. He says, and when he talks about the third and fourth generation, he's talking about the sin of idolatry particularly spawns other thought processes and other mental attitudes. And he says there's more of a spiritual thing than actually a physical generation thing. But even if it's physical, God says the consequences will only be down to four generations. However, 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 I need to even put that into context. 
Is this good? All right. So this is a good Bible study just before Christmas. Deuteronomy. This is God's law. But I'm going to quote it to you. Is that right? In Deuteronomy 24 verse 16, it says that children should never be put to death, punished for their parents' sin. Research it. Everybody say amen. amen. This is God saying, children should never be punished for their father's sin. So if the father commits a crime, a capital crime, you cannot punish the children and put them to death because of their parents' sin. Everybody say, God said it. Everybody say, God said it. So God is saying, you cannot project the punishment of the parents onto the children. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Listen to this. Each will die for their own sin. Everybody go, woohoo, amen, hallelujah. In other words, if God said it, how then would God break his own principle in saying, right, you sinned, therefore I'm passing the curse, I'm passing the punishment and the consequences onto your children and your children's children and your children's 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 children. When he says, you not to do it. Why would God do it? Come on, that's a clincher, isn't it? Don't you think so? Man, I got so excited when I saw this. This is the backstory to Christmas. We're going to elaborate on it a bit more just for a few minutes and then come back to it. So in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 6, 2 Kings 14, verse 6, there was a king by the name of Amaziah. His father's name was Jehoash, who was also a king. Uh, he was not a particularly good king. The servants rose up and killed Jehoash. They murdered him. And then when Amaziah became king, the Bible says when the kingdom was firmly in his hand, he then got the servants who killed his dad and put them to death. But it says, but he did not put their children to death in keeping with the law of God. Come on, somebody say amen. You say, nothing of my forefathers came down to me. Nothing, nothing. Only good stuff. Is that okay? Come on. Come on, church. This is really good news. And so if you go to Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, I'm so glad I did this as a study. In Jeremiah chapter 31, this was coming up to the chapter and the verses where he talks about Jeremiah prophesies it, Ezekiel prophesies it, where God says, um, time is coming when I'll make a new covenant. So, so Jeremiah 31, and in verse 29, listen to what he says. In those days, people will no longer say, he's talking about those days. Everybody say, those days. The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Verse 30, instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. Verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with the ancestors when I took them in. This is the covenant what I'll make with them, verse 33. I'll put my law in their hearts and minds. This was quoted in the book of Hebrews. So he's saying, in particular, it's true now. But in particular, in New Testament days, no sin of any parent will be passed on to the children. Is that good? This is the covenant. Is it okay? 
And so he's talking particularly about the covenant time. Come on, this is just nailed that curse thing. Is that right? Generational curses are ready. It's just nailed it. Right, so let me just talk a little bit about it. And, and I, I want to just show you something. And the thing is, we have to differentiate. There is consequences. We are living in a country where there are consequences for what our leaders have done. And it affects us. But it's not their punishment or their judgment coming onto us. It's the consequence, the results of their bad leadership and corruption that is affecting us. Is that okay? And so it's the same. When you raise your children, if you raise them well and you're a good parent, you pass on a good model of life, you pass on good attitudes and all kinds of things, um, that will carry over for them and put them in good stead. But if you were a drinking, wife-beating, you know, uh, you know, you know, and, and around and, and all this kind of thing, person, you will set up consequences for them. But it's not judgment. It's not a curse. Come on, everybody. It's a consequence. But I, I want to just show you something that now, because this parable has been coming down, coming down, coming down, coming down, and they're thinking, you know, Adam and Eve sinned and then sin passed on to us and, you know, therefore judgment. But the problem with this, if you have a fixed equation for curses and punishment coming down, that equation's fixed. It means you cannot get out of it. Nobody can deliver you. It's the fixed principle of punishment for sin. It's fixed then. Well, you know, my parents sinned and they sinned and now it's a generational curse. Well, you've cast it in stone. You can't change it. Are you understanding what I'm saying? In other words, there leaves no room for me to change. Because there needs no room for me for personal accountability. So, God begins to attack it. So, in, let's go to Ezekiel. If we go to Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 1, you will see it says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, in verse 2, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. We are not going to use this proverb in ACF anymore. We are not going to use this proverb. We are not going to entertain the proverb. It is hereditary curses. Cut the generational curses. We will not use that proverb in ACF anymore. Because God says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. Listen to what he says. The soul who sins will die. Amen. If you're under a curse, you brought it on yourself. If a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat and he talks about all the things that he does not do, he says, he is righteous, verse 9, and will surely live, declares the Lord. Then in verse 10, he says, then he may have a violent son who sheds blood, who does any of these other things. Then he says, the consequences of it in verse 13, he will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Then he gives another example. He says, there's a righteous father. Then he has a wicked son. Then the son has a son, but he's godly. He said, none of the righteousness passes to the son. He's got to live his own life. But none of the evil either then passes on to the grandson, onto his son. 
each one lives his own life and each one is accountable for his own life. And God takes the entire chapter of Ezekiel 18 and he says, the soul that sins will die. It's not your parents. You can't pass it on to your children. If your children sin or if they're righteous, they will live. And then God takes it a bit further in Ezekiel 18. I'm rushing to finish. And he says, listen, I want to tell you something else. If there's a righteous man and he becomes wicked, he'll be punished. He'll take the consequences of that sin. But if there's a wicked man and then he repents and becomes righteous, then he will live. He'll be blessed. If there's a righteous man and he sins and then he repents and becomes righteous, he will live. And then he takes it even further and he says, but listen, I want to tell you something. If there's a wicked man and he's not righteous and he's born in iniquity and he repents, he'll be forgiven. He will live. And God goes through every scenario and he says, I want to undo this parable that came from Manasseh's time that was right from the genealogical line of Jesus and to tell you that each person will stand and be accountable for their own lives. Under such circumstances was Jesus of Nazareth born. Under what circumstances were you born? Nothing in your family line comes down onto you. You're not a helpless victim of some person that got involved in the Freemasons hundreds and hundreds of years ago or ancestral worship or anything like that. If you are a child of God, you are able to turn. Is that okay? And so God says it in Ezekiel 18. We'll just have a look at it now. In Ezekiel 18, we go a bit further down in verse 20. The person whose sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment, but he continues. If the wicked man turns from all his sins that he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices, justice and righteousness, he shall live and shall not die. Listen to what God says in chapter 18, verse 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? So God says, let me just take it a step further. I don't even want the wicked to perish. What I delight in is they turn from their wickedness and turn to me and live. Even the wicked. Even the wicked have the ability to turn and repent. If, listen to it, think about it practically. If sin could be transmitted or the results could be transmitted in a curse, every single one of our ancestors sinned somewhere. Why just take Freemasonry? I mean, I'm sure they all lied. I mean, Omar was born holy, but I'm sure somewhere along the line she did something wrong. I have never found out, because if I did, I'd have to give her a hiding for all the hidings she gave me. But I mean, you know, were they perfect? No, they weren't perfect. So every single thing from every generation, everything would be passed down to us. It means that I wouldn't stand a chance. But when the time came and I heard the gospel, I was able to respond. I was able to change. I was able to repent. Amen. Because there's a thing called personal accountability. So when the exiles were standing and saying, well, we're righteous. We didn't sin. Why are we here? God, you're not fair. And that's one of the things they actually said. God's not fair. His justice system is unfair. God said, are you free from guilt? Are you, are you, if you, do you have no sin? Do you have no accountability to the fact that you're here? You've never done anything wrong. And he said, this parable will never be spoken again. And so nothing can pass down the genealogical line. So the good news is 
The good news is, if we will take accountability, we can change. Amen? So the backstory to the Christmas message is this. That through all of that unhealthiness, through all of those, I, I mean, you just read about Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. I mean, you talk about the relational pollution that went on there. You know, I'm not, and then they start naming their children, you know. You know, I'm not loved by my husband and all this kind of thing. Hello, what's your name? My husband doesn't love me. <laughs> you know, that's what the kids are saying, you know. It reminds me of a story from the deep south. Two little boys. And the older brother goes to school for the first time. And uh, so the little brother's now waiting because mommy said, you know, it's nearly time for your brother to come home from school. Now he's all excited because he wants to go to school too. So he's looking and he's thinking his brother's going to be coming home. My first day at school. But he's coming down the road and he's kicking the stone. He's dragging his suitcase. And, and here's the little brother. He's sitting on the corral fence and he's looking. So and he comes and he goes, hey, um, wagon wheels, how was your first day at school? So he said, wait till you get to school, chicken poo. <laughs> See how much fun it is. Because they gave them funny names. That's the joke. Okay. So it was kind of like that in Jacob's household. My husband doesn't love me. God hasn't seen me. He hasn't seen my cry. And I mean all this relational pollution. But hey, hey, Jesus came from that line. Amen. So it doesn't matter how your parents were. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what kind of family life you've had. It doesn't matter. Because out of that line, Jesus was born. Under those circumstances, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul didn't look at his family line and go like, Oh, well, this is yeah, you know, the tribe of, you know, and, and uh, you know, how tough it was. I mean, you know, there was a stage where, for example, Gideon, you know, said, I'm from the least of the least of the least of the least tribe. But God says, hey, mighty warrior. What? What? Nothing can affect you from your background because into all of that, into your family line, Jesus came. To all your mess, Jesus came. He redeemed a man and his family. He redeemed a clan. He redeemed a nation. He came in and he changed everything. Is that okay? If we will get it, if we will understand, if we will understand that the genealogical record ended, my genealogical record ended, I lost interest in the Wasserman family name. When I started more and more to understand this, it may be a little bit interesting or whatever to go and look and go like so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. You know, I'm just so glad for Bev because the first Wasserman that came to South Africa was Jan Hjoch, John George. Every grandson was John George. And I don't know why my parents decided to call me John George. It was because every second generation was John. You could go back all the way back to the year 1700, John George, skipper line, John George, skipper line, John George. So when we had children, I said, what are we calling them? Bev said, not John George. So how many of you know some genealogies need to end? <laughs> okay, Some traditions have got to end. But, but the point is this, is that into all of that stuff, Jesus was born. And there comes a point at which when I, if I understand it, you know, I am connected, but none of the negatives come down. None of the traitorship comes on me. Nothing. What does come to me is everything of Christ. 
Because if you follow my line, it's going to go past Adam and it's going to come out with God. Amen? So I'm part of the generation of Jesus Christ. And so just on a practical note as we come to end, um, this is what God says in the closing two verses of Ezekiel 18. He says, cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Come on, church. I mean, isn't that awesome? So we can, get, we can be struggling with long-standing things. We can be struggling with long-standing things. And people can say, oh, yeah, it's just like your mother. I mean, I tease Laura. Whenever she's screaming and crying, I tell Yaku, that's, his, that's her mother coming out. Whenever she's like this, I say, that's your father coming in. I look at how beautiful and angelic that is. That's just like her daddy. And people will say things, oh, just like your father, just like your mother. And it can box you. Isn't that right? An alcoholic son, they'll go, well, he's got no choice. He's got no hope. Because his father was an alcoholic. It's not true. Because there's a thing of personal accountability, personal choice that I can make, and I can change that thing. Amen? Wow. He just flips out and he loses it just like his father did. No, 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 no. He can change because there's a personal accountability. Sure, there may be behavioral things that were passed on, and you learned it, but the same way you can unlearn it. You can decide because you are now of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Amen? So you don't have a power thing flowing out of that genealogy line, that natural line. You have a power thing flowing out of the very life of Jesus Christ. So you can change. I can change. Amen? And that's the backstory to Christmas. That's the truth about Christmas, that he changed everything for us. So now we are born under different circumstances. Because we are born again. Amen. Amen. Look at some person. <clears throat> maybe, maybe just look at the person next to you and say, Pastor John took away all your excuses this morning. <laughs> he took away all your permission. Okay, so, so tell the person, say, so you can be good. You can be holy. Amen. Amen. Come on, you're not the victim of something like that. There's no generational curses. There's all the scriptures there. If God himself says, this is a law, that a child is not to be punished for the fathers. You do not put to death someone for their father's sin. How much more God would uphold that? So he will never pass a curse or a judgment down onto you because of something your forefathers did. Amen? The backstory of Christmas. Amen. Amen. So place your hands on yourself and uh, just say, I am free from anything in my generation. No attitude. No sin, no wickedness, no consequence binds me. I stand on my own cognizance, my own independence. I take responsibility for my life because I'm no longer of that genealogy. I'm now of the generation of Jesus Christ. I've been born again into a new family. I have a new father. God stands as the head of my family, and I'm a child of God. So I receive all the benefits to thousands of generations because I love him. I am not in idolatry. 
I serve the one true God. Therefore, there's only blessings in store for me. There's only a godly heritage in store for me. And I have now released to my generations beyond me, to thousand generations, blessing from the Lord. Many blessings in Jesus' name. And I will maintain my liberty. I will maintain my freedom. I rejoice in the fact that God takes no pleasure in judgment and sin, but that we may turn and live. Therefore, in every negativity, in everything that's wrong, I turn away, I repent that I may live and truly live in Jesus' name. We all agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Amen.